Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can follow us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can follow the Trilon at Trilon Cinema or visit Trilon.org to get tickets to any showing, uh, including the one for the movie we're about to talk about. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and as is the case with everyone else, I am some kind of freak. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me at Shiitake Harry, and I'm just going to say there exists an addiction to blood. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. I did not come up with a line from this movie. I kind of thought we were just doing that maybe like the last two. Uh, apparently, it's a running thing. I'll work on it. Just like that's sort of yeah, a money bet for you. About that. <laughs> uh, including... Uh, one of your running bits, Aaron, just to give you some 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 leeway here. Uh, do you want to give us a quick recap of the movie we're talking about today? Indeed, we are talking about 1973's Ganja in Hess, uh, directed by Bill Gunn, uh, who also plays a role in the film. Uh, Bill Gunn, mainly a playwright, but this is one of three films that he directed, uh, one of also a handful of films and projects that he acted in uh, on the camera. Um, Films tells the story of Dr. Hess Green, played by Dwayne Jones, uh, an anthropologist who studies an ancient African group of vampires called the Murthians. Uh, when he is stabbed three times with a Merthian dagger, an ancient dagger, uh, by his assistant, uh, George Maida, who is played by the director himself, Bill Gunn, uh, he discovers that he has become a vampire, uh, a mortal but hungry for the blood of humans in kind of the typical vampire way. Uh, when his assistant's wife, uh, Ganja Maida, played by Marlene Clark, visits in an attempt to find her husband, Ganja and Hess soon become lovers and she takes to his darker uh, powerful side. Uh, it should be noted that this is a film by a black director. It is a black film. It is kind of a historically a, an important and kind of very notable um, film uh, that kind of is parallel maybe to black exploitation. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, this film also, we talked about it uh, or we will talk about it, but Dwayne Jones, who plays the lead, also played the lead of. Uh, the character in Night of the Living Dead, which is also playing at the Tridelon right now. Or soon to be. Uh, please keep in mind the dates we're publishing here, and it's just professional courtesy. Uh, I want to toss it to the room for your quick thoughts about this movie that I can jot down notes from, and we can begin the conversation. Cody, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I'd love to kick you. Um, yeah, uh, this was awesome. I very much enjoyed Ganja and Hess, and I've also enjoyed the process of uh, thinking about it and letting it digest more uh, the day after seeing it. Uh, We all saw it together last night, um, keeping the date ambiguous so as to not pull back the curtain too far. Uh, It'd be pretty easy to place this movie simultaneously into two genre buckets, uh, if you will, those buckets being for horror films and black exploitation films, which for all intents and purposes is technically correct, I guess. Um, maybe we'll get into that. Um, it's also sort of funny because those genres 
share some interesting similarities, uh, at least to me. Um, I would say that the scale is shifted differently between the two, but they ultimately come off as genres defined by and most well-known for just a few titles that comprise the tip of their respective icebergs, you know? Um, and with horror, uh, depending on how you define it, you have things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, if you want to go a little more highbrow, you can throw in something like Alien, uh, and then you have whatever Ari Aster uh, puts out for a wide release these days. Um, beyond that, you need to consciously make a point of searching for the other deeper cuts uh, that have, in some cases, maybe contributed more to shaping the construction of that genre, even if they aren't um, what people are watching now. Uh, and I don't want to misrepresent, misrepresent rather what those titles might be because that's something I'm still trying to, to discover for myself. But that just seems to be the impression that I've been getting. Um, and again, on a much different scale, that's the feeling I get uh, from black exploitation films as well. Um, you know, you have the the heavy hitters uh, like Shaft, and you've got Dolomite, maybe throwing Blackula. And um, even if you haven't seen these movies, there are titles that you more than likely have come across uh, before. Um, if you've put forth even surface level engagement with discussions relating to to film and genre beyond that, in part for the same reasons as uh, the horror genre has, uh, but also for some very different reasons, very <laughs> explicitly different reasons, you need to put in the work to find and experience those titles um, because they might be pretty well buried. Uh, and that's why watching Ganja and Hess felt like such a unique blessing um, because of those genre buckets. I, for better and for worse, had the vaguest of uh preconceptions coming into the screening that uh, the four of us put together ourselves. And it took me a little bit to get my footing. Uh, the other reason for that is Ganja and Hess has a very um, distinct and intentional filmic language that uh, was sort of unclear at first, uh, kind of the point. Um, but the journey of understanding what Bill Gunn was communicating, how he was communicating it, why he was communicating it uh, was such a good uh, journey to undertake. Um, and a lot about this movie felt overtly intentional. And many of those things uh, were things that I loved the use of color, the visual language. Um, I think all of us had a certain fondness for the score. Um, quick aside, looking into the music, I was brought to light in the attic. Shout outs to light in the attic. They put out a limited edition vinyl release of the soundtrack. Back Holy in, shit. Uh, I think 2018. Um, it still hasn't sold out. Uh, from what I can tell, I could put it in my cart on their website. So uh, for those of us here or listening who are interested, that's something that's uh, out there. Um, but I'm rambling here. I'm looking forward to hear uh, hearing what y'all think about it as well. But this movie is one that um, I find myself liking more and more uh, the more I think about it. Me too. Harry? Uh, yeah, sorry. I was tabbing over to Light in the Attic. Um I like this movie a whole lot to echo Cody's sentiment. I think it's really interesting that the sort of critical response or what little I've seen of it sort of places it in historical context primarily. Like it, it's, it seems that this movie is primarily interested to people because of its era and its genre and its sort of history. The fact that it's black directed and the fact that it's a black genre movie are, are all really important to people. I think that that's all um, correct and um, should be considered. It's just interesting to me that when, when people evaluate this movie, they seem to evaluate it as something of a mess. Um, I don't, really agree with that takeaway. I found this movie very realized and very intentional as Cody said, and I came away with a really realized, really complete sort of reading on it as, um, a interrogation of the ways in which, uh, different communities of power and affluence and influence sort of build and program, um, black hatred and how even, 
black people who assimilate into those cultures are afflicted by those uh, feelings of hatred and sort of self-loathing and the, the ways in which the history of blackness is not as reconcilable with uh, modernity as we tend to think it is. Um, it's sort of playing in that space of considering the ways in which uh, blackness is not actually at all reconcilable with uh, globalism or with sort of a post-global uh, worldview, the ways in which racism and uh, the history of violence against black people has not disappeared and can still be felt and is still a defining force within cultural institutions such as Christianity, Catholicism, uh, academia, all of those things. I think that this is a movie with a tremendous amount on its mind concerning those things and fitting it into the framework of black exploitation and the framework of uh, genre of horror genre is a really fascinating and brilliant, in my opinion, way to uh, begin to deconstruct those things. And as a result, I think it's a really like surprisingly poignant and tender character piece as well. Uh, this movie sort of belies that by being such a sensational movie in the tradition of horror movies. Uh, and it is, as Cody pointed out, difficult to follow at points it has a very sort of indie very sort of surrealist at times even pacing structure and uh plot construction but underneath all of that i think that gaja and hess are both really fascinating characters i think that the primary difference is that a lot of their interiority is not explicitly expressed uh particularly in the case of hess himself which i think is itself very intentional and very interesting but we don't get to hear a lot about who they are on the inside. We just get to see the effects of that interiority on their actions and decisions. And that is very interesting to me as well. So as Cody said, this is a movie that I had a lot of fun thinking about and sort of reconciling to, I keep using that word, but, but the ways that the visuals I was seeing and the music and the characters were making me feel with a sort of takeaway that was commensurate in its uh, grandiosity. And I really actually ended up feeling like this movie earned all of its sort of pretensions toward, uh, I don't know, epicness, right? Or like toward uh, dire sort of arch um, power. And I, I was fascinated by it. And so I think this is like a really, really good movie, like a lost sort of movie. And I think that that people sort of give into astonishment, maybe, uh, given the sort of cultural critical evaluation of it a little bit too much, because it is so messy. I think that despite of, or maybe even because of that messiness, it becomes something very, very powerful. I agree. I think it does this thing where it, it evades just your understanding at, uh, you know, really key crucial moments. It's going to be really fun talking about that. Uh, Aaron, give us your quick run. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll pretty much give my opinion by echoing, I think some of what, what Harry said, and that I think that there is kind of an interesting thing that happens specifically with films like this that are so like culturally and historically important, um, especially ones that, that maybe go away for a little while and then get released. This, this film got re-released, I believe it was a, a Kino Blu-ray, uh, re-release of this film, um, that very notably didn't 
fix a lot of the kind of artifacting and a lot of the visual problems with the original film. One thing that if you Google this, uh, if you Google the movie and you kind of read a lot of the recent articles, um, they'll all mention this hair that's in one of the frames or one of the shots for a few seconds early on in the film. And they'll use that as an example of some of the, the kind of visual problems with this movie that have been left in uh, over time and over different editions of the film and different cuts of the film. Um, I think that that's kind of like an interesting thing because I do think that a lot of the imperfections of this film, uh, I think some of them are are certainly intentional, but I think a lot of the other ones such as that hair are kind of interesting, um, when viewing this, this film as like a historical object, but even outside of that, I think it is, uh, just a really good movie that it does earn a lot of the, the thematic, uh, stripes that it's going for. Um, and I think that there's a way of kind of talking about this, uh, in purely this kind of, with a, with a craft based, craft based approach that gets away from that. This is a movie that's very deeply concerned about, uh, the few characters that it takes a look at. I mean, it's almost two hours. There's very minimal dialogue. Um, it's, you know, except for a, a very wonderful soundtrack that kind of comes in from time to time. I think it's generally a pretty quiet movie. Um, and I really like a lot of that stuff. And I, I think I had kind of the same thing as everybody else here where I was maybe struggling to process it a little bit kind of in the moment. But I think that over the course of the last few hours, um, the last day or so, uh, I think it's grown on me quite a bit. Um, so I guess I just say that that I would agree with Harry and that I think that again, I, I think it's probably just because of the re-releases. But the more you Google about this movie, you generally just get these kind of uh, uh, half-baked explanations of the thematic content of this movie. And then most of what they're focusing on is the technical aspects of, of the film. Um, I think that I will shout out real quickly is the last thing that I'll say is that there is a uh, British Film Institute article called Bodies Off, Ganja and Hess, uh, Bill Gunn's Under the Skin Flick. And the kind of sub kind of subline here is the art of decomposition, why Bill Gunn's vampire film drives a stake through classical film craft. Uh, and that goes into why a lot of the filmmaking techniques in this were uh, intentional as a way to kind of combat a lot of the the mostly white uh, filmmaking um, kind of standard practices and how that ties into a lot of the thematic uh, content of the film. So I'll maybe dive into that in a bit, but I thought that article specifically was good at guiding my, my thoughts on the film. For sure. We will link that in the show notes as well. Uh, just to give my really quick overview, I think it's a, a great place to start with this movie is going to be the structure of it. I think it's the one thing that's been universal or rather shared among all of our opinions and sort of our, our viewing of it was that as uh, Cody put it, there's like a journey to where Bill Gunn is taking you throughout this movie and just how it's put together, how the pieces interlock or sometimes don't sometimes, you know, specifically fractured or like some misdirection used in some scenes. Uh, Cody, if you would uh, describe, like take us on that journey that you, that you're talking about and let's, let's see what we can't mind there out of like the structure of this movie. Sure. And, um, any of you fellas, you, you know, if I'm forgetting something, feel free to, to fill in the blanks. Um, it is a round we, table podcast. Literally. Um, just not right now. Formerly. Uh, <laughs> this, my table right now is a rectangle for what it's worth. So I will be approaching it from that, uh, that right <clears> angle. <throat> um, the, so we, we start off, Ganjan has starts off the first thing, I believe it's the very first thing we see is a, um, it's on, on screen text, basically, laying out the inciting incident 
of the movie. Um, the fact that uh, that Doctor Hess has this this insati- insatiable uh, thirst for blood, and then we see that inciting incident play out over the course of the next fifteen minutes or so. Um, his uh, his interaction with um, the character played by uh, the director, uh, the character being George Maida, um, and that inter- interaction. Um, leaving out the details leads to uh, Dr. Hess getting stabbed by an artifact that leaves him with, with this thirst for blood um, that our sort of lead into the movie is also um, as kind of, as well as that on-screen text is brought in by this, you could say tertiary character that might even be generous, but it's um, this preacher slash um, uh, like driver for Dr. Hess. He has uh, a few different, kind of occupational roles uh, within the movie and, and the community. Um, but we're sort of brought in through him, like explaining, this is, this is our main character. Uh, this is what's going on. Um, and, and it kind of in between all those things, we get some, some dream sequences. Uh, we get some non sequitur kind of uh, like uh, stories and, and monologues uh, from the main characters that we probably will get to the one that, that Ganja um, has about midway through the movie. Um those are sort of the, the ones that stood out to me, at least at the outset of, of that journey. Um, does that match what, what you guys experienced too? Did, did I miss anything major that you wanted to touch on? Uh, I will say real quickly, uh, you shouted out the chauffeur pastor that was played by Sam uh, Wayman, who also created the score for this film that you had mentioned earlier. Um, and was Nina Simone's brother. Damn. Oh my God. Yes, well, that is amazing. Why that is not more clearly, I mean, you know, he also, he, he is a, a very accomplished in his own right, but also Nina Simone's brother. That ex- <laughs> that explains his singing voice at the end of the movie. <laughs> yes, yes. Because he, he's singing that hymn, and I was like, this guy has a beautiful fucking singing voice, and it was like, oh, well, uh, turns out. Runs on the family. Um, yeah, Cody, I think you characterized it really well. I think we should reiterate just that, like, there are some tentpole scenes that sort of unify this movie, but a lot of it is is not like strictly psychologically parsable, right? In the sense that like it starts in a weird place, there are these weird conversations, there's feeding that happens. It's like we're not there's not like a like really defined arc. Uh for my part anyway, one of the most striking things about this movie maybe is that I couldn't quite figure out why from a strictly plot sort of character based perspective, um, Hess green ended up becoming quote unquote, as Wikipedia says, disillusioned with the vampire lifestyle. Um, In my mind, from a strictly sort of plot based perspective, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't see the arc that got him to want to commit suicide. Does that make mm. sense? I, I think so. My read of that was, and it's probably weak is that he sees what, and you know, from a thematic level in the parallels between like uh, societal expectations of the assimilation of black people uh, into, you know, I guess white society in a lot of ways that there is like, he realized that once he did that to ganja, that there was like, he maybe he's felt guilt about that. That might be a really like small brained way to see that. But that's what that's what I got out of it was that he was feeling guilt about having like sort of brought somebody else into this lifestyle that he wanted company in that he sort of felt a romanticism about before he did it. And then he realized what he was actually doing to the person. If that's I don't know if that rings at all to what your your point might have been. Um, I, I think that's part of it. Um, I also think that that. 
I think a lot of the character work in this film is kind of hard because it's it's definitely relying more on what's going on thematically than what's going on from like a narrative perspective. Um, I think that the that the main conflict that Dr. Hess Green faces is this kind of um, this rift between this this I want to say like fantasy or like mythology of this African nation, right? Um, and that being juxtaposed with yes. uh, modern Christianity, specifically black Christianity. Um, and I think it's it's kind of a spiritual struggle. And I think that the main telling thing for me in this movie that kind of informs my thoughts on uh, his decision to end his own life is that I think it, you know, it is very purposefully paralleling his experience with that of his prior assistant, George Maida, who is not a vampire. Yeah. Um, they decide to end their lives, and it actually uh, cuts from shots of Dr. Hess Green to George Maida, uh, basically killing themselves in a very similar fashion. Um, the the affliction that they have is not vampirism, right? It is greater than that. It is national. It is global. It is a plight of a group of people who are culturally kind of set adrift and lost. Um, and I think that is the main thing that he is struggling with. Harry, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I actually, um, I took elements of both of what you said. And thinking about uh, Hess's interiority and his decision to end his own life was what really unlocked this movie for me, I think. Um, I would just go further with Aaron and talk about how that that um, tension between the mythology of this nation, um, this ancient nation of Murthia, and the sort of realities or his knowledge of how it would be depicted in uh, modernity, they they parallel his own feelings about himself and about uh, blackness in general, right? And it's also important to note that his feelings about Murthia, well, spiritual, are also like literally commercial. Uh, like Murthia is his livelihood. He is a black academic, right? He's an anthropologist. He's using anthropology as a means to enter the moneyed world of white people. He lives in this beautiful old mansion. He says at one point he's the only black person in the neighborhood. He has like some very strict self-consciousness about that, about the manner in which he has to behave when he's in his mansion and when he's in this neighborhood, the manner in which he has to behave when he's in uh his um academic setting and it even defines the way that he interacts with his house servants where he almost uh ends up taking um George Maida under his wing as an assistant in this like kind of gross paternalism right where like he's he's taking this guy on because it's like it's another black guy that he can sort of like have work for him and be doing a favor um and it's sort of like that sets the stage for their relationship early on. Uh, and so like Hess has this deeply internalized self-loathing about being a black man. At least this is my read. And again, it's weird to talk about this movie being white dudes. Um, so I apologize for that. Right. Like we're never really qualified to talk about the movies we talk about. And yet here we are. I think that's especially apparent here. So again, uh, take this all with a grain of salt. And if you don't agree with my reading, just remember that I'm not actually qualified to make it. But in my mind, Hess has this, this mythology of 
himself as this person who is going to assimilate into white culture and who doesn't actually fully understand the depths of in which he hates black people because of his desires that runs parallel to Ganja uh, Maida's own internalized self-loathing, which she makes explicit, unlike Hess. And so to me, I think that he saw the Murthian curse as this terrible uh, tragedy and curse, like I said, instead of the the blessing that it might have been. And it was sort of a refutation of himself and of his livelihood and everything he thought he could be, right? Like he thought he could bring this knowledge of Murthia and the Murthians forward and use it as a means of assimilating with white culture and demonstrating that he could be just as intellectual and just as um, moneyed as they are and that black history could be all of those things as well. And then he learns that the Murthians were vampires and he learns that he himself now has to be a vampire. And it feels like, no, like this is telling him he can never be these things. And I think that that self-loathing is what set up his, his hatred of himself and the way that that intersects with Christianity is particularly interesting, but I'll shut up now and let Aaron go ahead. I, I think I might maybe disagree with that reading a little bit. To me, it always felt like, um, to me, it always felt like the, the, you know, there's a, a kind of this, this visual and, uh, kind of audio trope that's, that's used. There's this audio cl- uh, clip of, of, as the subtitles say, African chanting, uh, that kind of, uh, comes in during some of his, let's say, uh, weaker moments, right, where he's really thirsting, desiring blood. Uh, he starts hearing African chanting um, on screen. There starts to be kind of this fade in of uh, people running through grass and whatnot uh, in Africa. Um, you know, I, I think that that is kind of his conscience uh, kind of coming through in some of those moments. To, to me, it seems like what he wanted to do uh, with the vampirism is, is some sort of, um, kind of move away from this kind of Eurocentric white, uh, image of wealth and power. I think that the, the, the contradiction there is that by becoming a vampire, he essentially has assumed this role that is right. very classically European, uh, and very g- generally classically seen as white, which is, you know, the kind the Dracula, right? Uh, the Transylvanian weirdo who sits in his castle all day and eats people uh, and drinks their blood and is just kind of this mythological figure, but as a mythological figure that is very distinctly white. Um, I think that that kind of plays into a lot of the uh, ennui that he experiences and kind of his feelings of, of I don't know, adriftness, I guess is what I keep coming back to. Uh, I actually really agree with that. You're right. I think I mischaracterized the jump from first act to third act. I think that at first he's trying to do that, right? Like, I don't think that he jumps directly to hating vampirism. I think that he relishes, like Jason said, he relishes the performance at a certain point, right? Like when he first achieves his powers, he sort of takes pride in the fact that he can be a front-facing sort of again Dracula right where he can command this presence and this power when he is in these environments well secretly he still has this this fundamental blackness right that he can uh perform in in the part of the vampirism right which is his return to his roots so to speak and i think that that there is a time when like Dracula relished that double life he is relishing that double life, right? I think that's true. Yeah, I think that, um, 
you know, to, to try and tie this back to my uh, kind of incoherent rambling about the technical aspects of this film, I think that, um, you know, so many people focus on kind of the flaws of this film due to its lack of budget and its age. I think that there's actually a lot of very effective filmmaking here. One thing that, that struck out to me when watching the film uh, that kind of backs up what we're saying here is that very consistently he will be having these kind of dreams, this kind of uh, these images floating through his head, uh, you know, of the Murthians. And there's this kind of chanting in the background and immediately it will cut to him waking up in these silken sheets with classical music. It's always classical music playing right. in the background, right? It is that instant juxtaposition um, that is super effective filmmaking, right? But also, like, everybody's talking about how this film is like, oh, it's 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 badly made, but, like, if you look past that, but, like, no, that's extremely effective, like, actually really good filmmaking that is, like, driving home the thematic core of this film. Um, and there's, like, so many moments of that uh, that that was what was annoying me about reading all these articles. It's like, no, this, this is actually a really well-made, well-acted film. It's just doing completely weird shit. I agree. Um, so I think what we've characterized so far is that in act one, we establish Hess Green as the victim. He's the, the intellectual who's coming up in the world of anthropology. And then he becomes a vampire in act two. He is living this sort of double life as an immortal. He is preying on, Interestingly, primarily black people, although he also preys on a white woman at one point with a child and living this double life as a prominent intellectual, uh, prominent wealthy man who is also a vampire. And then in act three, post his relationship with Ganja Meda, he is guilt stricken uh, spiritually and morally and decides to take his own life rather than continuing to live as an immortal vampire. So I guess my next question is, where do we think, how do you think he got there from act two, where he is relishing the double life of living in the white world and the vampire world at the same time, the black vampire world to being so guilt stricken by his actions that, or if not guilt stricken, then at least choosing to take his own life. Because I think I might have an idea about where that is, um, and that informed my reading of the the film quite a bit. But I'm interested in in where you guys think that comes from. I, yeah, you go. Oh, I'll go ahead. Um, I think it's because he's invited another person into that into that life into that world. I mean, I already said this before, where like maybe he feels some amount. You of did. Guilt. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Right. But just to reiterate, like I think it is because he, you know, uh, since he killed. Uh, uh, George Maida, he has lived alone except for his uh, manservant, you know, at his remote mansion, wherever he is, um, very much a Dracula like trope character, uh, even without the powers. But I think that it is because he's welcomed somebody else into that life because he's starting to be able to like use her as um, like a vector for right. realizing what this life is it actually is what that like struggle because I don't think that it like Harry you were talking a lot about that struggle between his like his blackness and his desire to uh, assimilate into white culture and all these signifiers of white success and you know there's that visual motif that co keeps coming back with um, the white man who's eventually mask like in a masquerade mask uh, welcoming him saying like you know welcome to the society or wh whatever the line is that's right uh, that that signifier to me is like it keeps driving home when he's like alone in this life, the signifiers of, of his success and, you know, his motion through uh, toward like a more white assimilated cultural identity. 
And once he like brings Ganja fully into that, he's no longer like hiding from her that he drinks blood, that he, you know, is essentially a vampire without the infection, uh, like aspect, right? He can't turn somebody into a vampire on his own. He still needs the, the dagger. I think that is what triggers him to like have some self-reflection about it, that he's just been suppressing that. I don't think that it's externalized in a whole lot of ways up until that point in the movie where he realizes that he's brought her into it, that he's turned her into uh, one of these people who's like incredibly split and struggling with that sense of identity. And that is sort of like along with everything like that cascades. That's, that's the like keystone that falls apart and makes him realize the sort of life he's been living and what it's doing to him. And now maybe he's, like cursed somebody else to that life. That's my read. Yeah. It, it's very, um, it, that specifically the, the man and the, what kind of mask it was like an opera mask or like a, I read well, it like just a, a masquerade mask. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, um, uh, what, what's it called? The, uh, down in new Orleans, they'll have the yeah, Mardi Gras. It, it kind of yeah, looked like Mardi a Mardi Gras mask. mask. Sure. It, it, it reminded me very much of eyes wide shut, which is, I guess to say yeah. eyes wide shut reminds me of this. Really? This was predated eyes wide. Oh, shut hell yeah. 25 years uh, or so. Um, but I think that's it. I, I think it's, it's certainly his yes. kind of understanding and guilt about his, his kind of the status that he's attained and, and what kind of came along with that. I think if I do have one criticism is that I think that, I think that that reading of uh, kind of ganja being um, included in that kind of guilt, I think that works. I do think it um, for for a film that is pretty long. I think at a, you know an hour and fifty minutes. I think that that switchover does happen um, quite quickly. I think that if if there's one other yeah. event that may trigger it, I think it may be um, the I don't know what you call it that the tryst that he has that he and, he and ganja have with uh, another black man uh, in which I was going to speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that's probably the thing symbolically and narratively that is is also driving it. Um, But I think that it does move very quickly to the point where I can see why the question is asked, like, okay, what, what is the trigger here Um, that it did? Yeah. Part of this, this movie is also like this weird kind of fever dream. So it's, it can, can be hard to grasp in that manner too. But I to to speak to that, Aaron, I think you're right. I think that that tryst is exactly symbolically what gets him there. And it's it's particularly Jason, like you pointed out, the fact that he uses Ganja for this, right? Like Ganja is his seducting device, to, to for lack of a better term. He's teaching her the vampiric ways. He's teaching her how to feed on people. And to do that, he has her use her beauty to seduce this man. And in fact... She had said earlier in the movie in the what I think is like the show stopping monologue, right? Marlene Clark gives this incredible uh, speech in the middle of the movie. Marlene Clark in general, uh, I don't know much about her filmography. I think she's so fucking good in this movie. It's unreal. And like, I wish people talked about it. But anyway, um, so she seduces this this literal community leader, right? Like he runs this community outreach program for black youth. And using her beauty, which she had said she hated before, I think that's what flips the switch for uh, Hess to get him to see the ways in which, like Aaron said, the the tools of the master can never dismantle the master's house, right? To see the ways in which he is thinking, like, I thought that my black vampirism was sort of this radical, subversive, undercurrent criticism of, like... modern society i thought that it was my escape from being defined by the self-hatred that black people are heir to but in fact 
I am still the victim and I am still using this new power even affecting the same destruction of black life that the the colonizers do, right? And in fact, now I've brought in this beautiful woman, this woman who is herself a victim of the the life that black people are heir to this this sort of fundamental murderer victim dialectic that is set up by her husband and by um Hess at different times but this idea that black people are are both they're they're uh they're doomed to be sort of self-hating and now he has perpetuated this cycle even with this power and so fundamentally his power is affecting colonization is affecting imperialism right and i think that's what gets him there and so his relationship with ganja is what gets him to realize that he is not doing what he thought he was doing and interestingly also is redemptive i think because of where ganja ends up at the end of this movie and the ways in which she might be free of that but that's another that's a really interesting commentary on gender and sexuality that that would be interesting to address too but sorry i went on for a long time but all of this is to say i think i agree with you i think that the turn which is in my mind the keystone to unlocking this movie has to do with the way that he sees himself through ganja Right and his relationship with Ganja and how it gets him to reinterpret uh, the Murthians and vampirism and what he has been using to uh, what he has been affecting using that power. Um, I think y'all pretty well uh, are nailed the. Sorry, I wasn't sure if I was actually muted or unmuted because I clicked weirdly. But um, in any case, I think y'all pretty well nailed the uh, the actions that that led to that turn um with with Hess I don't have anything to directly contribute to that but I think going back to some of the the filmmaking uh techniques that maybe uh contributed to the building up to uh to that point um there were some things uh some pretty interesting things that I found from um April Wolf um she is uh she has a well known for a few different things um well-known in that I didn't know about her until last night while I was doing research, which uh, is a shame because she seems really cool. Um, Switchblade Sisters is a podcast she co-hosts uh, where oh, women. Hell yeah. Discuss... Switch... Yeah. Switchblade Sisters is really cool. Uh, check it out. Oh, oh nice. Um, I will definitely do that. Um, it, women discuss uh, action and genre cinema, um, which uh, is a great hook uh, to be honest. She also co-wrote the black Christmas remake. Um, so shout outs. Uh, pretty cool. Um, she had a, a great write up about what some of the the colors in this in this movie are doing. The ones that really pop um, have uh, you know they have uh, significance. The greens from the shots outdoors. Um, the the blood is so red, right? It's so distinct. It's so it rules, man. Uh, it man, I, I we one of you guys or, or maybe all of us shouted out the like the seventies ness of the the blood that technically I really blood. I, I think it, yeah, Aaron blood. said that, and I super yeah. agree. Yeah, uh, it's great. Um, the brown skin tones also uh, have moments where they they really shine. They're really crisp. Um, and uh, what Wolf posits is that the the visibility of these colors are a way of uh, a way of kind of us reading that nature is claiming uh, Dr. Hess. I would even posit, you know, I'm, I'm whether or not I, I'm sold on that, I'm still kind of thinking through that. I What it did allow me to do was posit a sort of corollary to myself or maybe just an extension that while nature is sort of visually embracing him, um, claiming him, uh, if that phrasing works, uh, Hess is also kind of along the way visually rejected uh, within his, his home, that nice 
orna- uh, like ornamented decorated home that that we've been talking about um and what feels like in my memory anyway many shots his silhouette is either obscured right it's it's shown clearly lit against a window so that you know we, we can't see his face uh we can't see the de- defining features of him really or not like all of him at once just kind of in pieces um and as we go there are many scenes where he's just missing from the frame within his home uh that snowball fight monologue from ganja he's not in it if i remember correctly it's just uh you know a one on her face just a close-up yeah, uh, most of yeah um which rules um we can't say that enough um for most of the third act uh that that dinner scene um the sort of seducing of that community leader uh correct me if i'm wrong has is not visible for for most of that just kind of again in in silhouettes yeah i think Uh, he's just in the background yeah um and so i don't know like again this is still sort of something i'm uh i'll use harry's word reconciling um a big part of the explanation for him being missing is is narrative he's uh not in the house because he's out feasting uh on people um which again as harry pointed out largely black people uh that that he's attacking um but also uh from what i could tell a single white mother with a child um but even so it seems to maybe be communicating something at least to me about his uh his place doctor has his place in that what he you know what he's attained his status um his sort of integration into this specific uh lifestyle and the the class connotations that come with that um the race connotations as well um he's there he's attained that but uh in a way it's also not quote-unquote his uh and it maybe alludes to the fact that he's on his way to to losing it uh or that you know it's something that could very easily reject him and that there are things that he feels alienated by right i i think that you said something really good which is that um he feels like the the home is rejecting him or that he feels like he is in tension or out of place within his own context or within the context he's built for himself i yeah like hess green is such a fundamentally conflicted character right like he stands at this crossroad of different tensions and those tensions end up destroying him right uh crossroads is no pun intended given his ignominious end but um, like it, it even has to do with the shifting perception of how he views his vampirism right like and what he uses it for i he can't help but interpret it as a curse and he can't help but use it the way that he, it has been classically used and something that this movie really brilliantly does in my opinion and i don't know if this was your takeaway but like it points out that vampirism need never be fatal which which is something that that has struck me that i i'd never thought of before but like like i Hess Green is killing these people because he's not reviving them, which he clearly has the power to do, and which Ganja did and and wanted to do. Uh, there's there's that point after the her first slaying, where she points out that the community leader is still alive, and Hess Green forces her out of the field where she was going to get him out of the bag that they placed him in. And the final shot of this movie after Hess Green has taken his own life is Ganja watching the community leader run naked across the field toward her, uh, presumably now a vampire, right? And so like it gets at this, this, again, like dialectic and matter of perception where it's like this thing that is a curse need not be. Like it need not be a destructive force. It can be a blessing, right? Like this could be used to preserve literally black history forever. And when you consider the way in which uh, Hess Green 
even himself had used it that way before, but he used it in this fundamentally uh, paternalistic, fundamentally imperial way, where he said, now that I have you as my wife, Ganja Meda, after we've been married, I want you to live forever, right? Not anybody else. So here he is acting as this, this curator, almost, of, of the black experience, where he kills pimps and he kills prostitutes, who are black and who are attempting to assimilate into modern life, but he is choosing the parts of blackness that he wants to survive. Right. And I think that that is, that is what is what ends up killing him is he realizes that that curation process is history eradicating in exactly the same way that he has studied. And it's interesting that, that pimping is something that is sort of a recurring motif because in a very cynical way, you can consider the thing that he's doing as an anthropologist who is using his anthropology to enter the moneyed world of, of white people to be a sort of pimping of African culture. Obviously, it's not that in reality, but you can see the parallels here, particularly the sort of cynical way that he views his profession. Uh, and you can see, obviously, the parallel of pimping with um, Hess having ganja seduce this man so that they can kill him together and feed on him. And so there's this sense in which he ends up viewing himself that way. And just as fundamentally, he ends up seeing that it need not be that way, that ganja can actually offer an alternative, right? Because at the end of the movie, she is the new vampire and she seems to be conducting herself in a totally different way. Maybe not even killing anybody, maybe even just using this gift to sort of restore like Murthians and reconnect people to their heritage, which is a wild ending, very like sci-fi, very speculative and kind of pretty rad. Right. I think. Uh, definitely great points. Um, and I think the, the fact that the, you, you know, the, the fact that death is not, you know, the guaranteed uh, end game uh, for, for this form of vamp vampirism, I think makes those those other thematic ties sing uh, that much more. Like it, it really crystallizes those. Uh, I think, and I, I, the only other thing I wanted to, to toss in the the ending for me at least it it had like you know the last couple shots you know that last little montage it had this sort of weird bittersweet notion to it. Um, you know, obviously, it, it, you know, life uh, slash cycle beginning anew. Um, really great that there's however this sort of bud blossoming in in the back of your head you know what if uh you know this this fellow that uh is going to kind of restart his life maybe he um you know finds a way to attain a similar status uh that dr hess has and maybe he will see the world and his his gift or you know maybe he will see it as a curse maybe he will he'll see these things in those ways and uh you know he'll be all the the worst for it um, really brilliant way to, to cap off that movie in my mind. Yeah. We should talk about the very last shot. I know we're, we're sort of over time, but, uh, really quick, I just wanted to get your guys' take on the last shot, which is children, right? And children, black children in particular are brought up earlier when, um, George Maida, who is the director, Bill Gunn writes a poem to them. And at one point he says, uh, love is all there is. And you are cannon fodder in its defense. Uh, there is a terrible need in man to teach. It destroys the natural instinct to learn. There are some just gorgeous fucking uh, lines of purple prose in this movie. Uh, at one point, uh, Hess Green says, the only perversions that can be condemned comfortably are the perversions of others. Um, so what did you guys take 
that final shot to be about given what we've been talking about. Cause I think I have, again, sort of a reading you can probably interpret based on my reading of Hess and Ganja. But um, what did you guys take away from that? Uh, my really quick response to that is um, I, uh, first off, I completely forgot about it. Um, thank you for, for bringing that up again. I think that was a pretty uh, great way to, it, it isn't quite bookending the movie, but, um, but children, specifically black children, are a notable motif through the movie. I'll, yes. cite, that, uh, I'll cite that poem again um, because I believe, like the thing that really stuck with me um, as a sort of through line as we watched, um, Maida, at one point, I think he equ- equates a young black children, maybe young black boys specifically, it might have just been children in general, uh, as nameless flowers. And then later in Hess's, uh, you know, decked out fucking mansion, seeing uh, so many fl- like decorative flowers, flowers and pots on tables, like so many flowers in, in shots as he's dressing down, um, you know, like the, the, the servant he has in his home, I'm blanking on, on his name because I suck. Um, but uh, during these, these particularly gruesome uh, like scenes of dialogue, uh, flowers stand out and, and it's, it's just like, man, in my mind, Dr. Hess wearing these thick boots, like stomping through a garden. It was so visceral. Um, I think leaving that as the, the final image. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it really sung in that way. Uh, real quick, hilariously, the, um, the servant's name was Archie, which again, very, very funny. Can I, was that the, was that the literal last shot or am I, because it's I the, uh, it's, it's the, the credits. Shot. It's the shot yeah. that plays over oh. the credits. The okay. literal last shot, like the last shot of the film proper, I believe is Ganja smiling at the camera. Okay. Cause that was the, that scene was the one that was kind of imprinted in my brain, I guess. Um, I, it's a great I final scene. I think that maybe that scene is so startling. And so you said speculative. I think that's probably a good word for it. Um, I think that that was the one that I was reflecting on. For sure. For sure. Kind of the minute that happened, it was like, I kind of sat back and I think I maybe checked out a little bit too much. Yeah. Well, your mind is blown, right? Like for sure. Yeah. Um, I just basically like, I think that this is a movie all about like uh, being careful about letting white people's perceptions of, of reality uh, to use the sort of parlance of the movie infect the, the black perception in the black mind. Right. Like I think that the sort of Greek tragic flaw of Dr. Hess is that he comes to realize that he can't help, but see himself the way white people do. I think that Bill Gunn early on in, in act one is undergoing that same uh, feeling and it's literally tearing him apart, right? He says that he has this schizophrenic murderer victim uh, mentality living in his head. I think that that's, that's the ways in which white modern culture is creating a black man who hates himself. I think that even like the Christianity motif is about that, right? It's about like here we, we see Hess Green going to this church ostensibly to receive salvation and forgiveness for his sins. And it's literally killing him. And the Reverend Luther Williams is singing this hymn about forgiveness and it literally is killing uh, Hess Green because that's what culture, that's what spirituality in imperialism does to like a black man. Um, And I think that that last shot of children is so affecting because it's like, it's a real like, shot across the bow to like, remember that like we have to be careful about the way we're letting ourselves be perceived 
like we can't think of ourselves as monsters, right? Like we can't think of ourselves the way that they want us to think about ourselves because we'll tear ourselves apart, I think. And like, this is a movie about a black man who literally becomes a monster, but the monster monstrosity is only in his own mind because in fact, it could have been anything else except for the fact that he couldn't see it otherwise. Right. I think, I think I take much a similar take from the ending away, maybe a little bit less, I guess, thought out because kind of like Aaron, I was focused so much on that actual final shot before the credits hit that, you know, very quickly once the credits hit, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm checked out, but my mind is elsewhere. Uh, I think that that last shot of all the children and they're singing a hymn in church um, is sort of like contrasting with, you know, Hess's undoing was his desire as uh, uh, George's poems sort of talked about to, to turn to teach, but not to learn to like impose himself on white culture, but he's actually like succumbing to it in ways uh, like he, his own wrestling and struggle with his uh, black identity is directly at war with his assimilation into white, into what's predominantly white culture. And, you know, there's no reconciling that. And he's a victim of, you know, like the first act of this movie, it's got those title cards and it's literally called victim. Um, and then the rest is survival. And I forget what the last part is. Letting go, letting go. Exactly. Right. Like a, like a complete succumbing to it. And then, uh, you know, an annihilation through it. Um, and I think that, what that last shot is saying, if anything, or at least what I read from it is that he's, or children are at least unencumbered with, with a lot of that, with, with those cultural stressors and accelerators that can lead a person to the spot Hess is in where he is in academia to like, with an express intent to do one thing, but actually his, his own intent is being subverted by expectations and, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the defining factors and defining features of the world that he's trying to operate in being predominantly white. And as you said, Harry, like an inherent hating of, of black culture and of black people and like a commodification of it. I think that just the way, like maybe it's, a note of hope on the end to try and say that children I agree. Are, yeah. yeah, that, that children are like the only ones who are truly unencumbered by this because they're not, they're not subject to a lot of those streams, at least not being aware of that. They aren't, uh, they aren't subject to a lot of those same expectations and a lot of those same, uh, stressors that, that, that have pushed Hess to where he was in life before he became a vampire, maybe before he like realized that, all was doomed, right? Right. Well, and I, I think that Ganja stands for the same thing, right? She's sort of like a um, a mother sort of like archetype that, that reappropriates the sort of quote-unquote evil of vampirism, right? Because she is a person who actually, through this story, gains her own agency, maybe for the first time, and is able to see herself as a positive, sort of like productive, creative force, rather than just a destructive force. Um, and I think that that Hess Green's redemption is in this movie is he gets her to that place in part, even unintentionally. And so like, I, I kept thinking about like the James Baldwin quote about how like there is no white culture, right? Like white culture is the vacuum of culture. It's the destruction of culture uh, and the, the reappropriation of culture. Um, I think that, that it's, it's interesting that like, that is the only thing that Hess could see using his powers for is to destroy and corrupt and take, but Ganja can create with it. And I think that, that the final shots of this movie are about that hope, right? About this idea that like, if we can get past this needing to see ourselves in this dialectical space of being murderer victims, 
uh, doomed to, to sort of play out our destructive forces, then we can become something that is not defined by our uh, relations to something, the way that whiteness is always defined in relation. And we can become something creative of our own, something that's actually positive. Um, and then the only other two things I wanted to add is that in one of the other quotes that uh, George Matus says is that um, to be adored on this planet is a, to be a symbol of success and you must not succeed on any terms, which is a great and like a really good shout out. Yeah. Shout out to like Dr. Hess, right? Is that like, that was a guy who succeeded on the terms that that white academia said he would succeed on. And then finally, the the hymn that they sing is... Um, it's about there is a fountain filled with blood and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains, um, which is sort of a, a reflection of what happens in the movie, I think. For sure. I really like where we got with this movie. Uh, any final thoughts we want to squeeze out before we head into our final segment? Um, I guess I guess my, my last final thought is that I, I think I maybe am a bit more... I think I'm reading a bit more of a pessimistic ending of the film than Harry. I don't know. I don't feel like this... Ooh. Oh, interesting. I think this film is is pretty critical of Ganja, right? Um, I think that it's empathetic towards her, but I, I think she the main difference between her and Hess is kind of that I think she is just okay fulfilling that role that Hess. It's possible that's a deconstructive right? reading. Yep, yeah, maybe for that's sure. super pessimistic. I don't no, know. I um, think that both of those readings exist, right? Like, I think that it's probably right to point that out <laughs> because she's super comfortable being in high society, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, and she said she loves to take care of ganja, so you're not wrong. Like, that's that's very uh, astute. Yeah, I don't know. I do see your reading. I think it's it's maybe kind of up in the air. I don't know if that. I'm still formulating some of that, but uh, I think it can go either way. I think that maybe Cody's point is that it could go either way. Good. It's a blank, a blank book. It still needs to be written. I hated that. I just said that. Uh, So Jason, can you edit that out? No, I mean, I, I sort of, I I'm coming, I'm coming around. I think that I understand like there, there's such fertile ground for reading on both sides of it. Right. Where like, I don't think, I think that it's, it's almost, it's patriarchal of me or, or sort of like fetishistic to say that Ganja is just like this pure mother figure because she's super not right. Like she is, is manipulative and uh, loves and indulges in like high society on like classically white terms herself and is much less aggrieved by her status than uh, Dr. Hess was. So there's definitely a sense in which it's like, well, like she's going to get hers, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think she's quick to, she's quick to latch onto the power, even when she first shows up uh, to the, the mansion estate or whatever. Um, she's very quick to begin uh, kind of bossing around Archie, the the servant, Right. Um, I think that that kind of that shows that that is her nature. And I think, again, it is there's a quite a bit of empathy towards her in this film, which is which is where I got my more positive reading. Right. Is that like I thought that 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 sort of like almost exaggerated um, uh, integration into this society, it, it like spoke to her class background. And I thought that the the monologue where she talks about how she's always hated herself, but she always in the end needed to take care of ganja um, was sort of like speaking to how like the, the black experience could, could end up being redemptive. Right. And so like, I had thought that her arc 
was toward better empathy and understanding. And she was going to sort of, for the lack of a better term, like save blackness uh, the way that she saved the the community leader. But I think you're right, right? Like there, there's, there's definitely readings on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. That was my, that was my last thought. Thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, then I think, unless there are any final thoughts, I think we're ready to go to our final segment to close out the show. And we like to call that final segment. We like to call that segment. Cody's Cody's. We like to call that segment. Ah, crap. I was late this time. Next time we'll fix it in post. Uh, (laughs) uh, Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Cody. Uh, Following last week's trek into a uh, a themed question game, that of course being the spooky Yuki guessing game, uh, I decided to make that the uh, made an executive decision that that would be the the house game, or maybe more appropriately the houseu game for the month of October uh, on Triumph. So we'll have it this week. Today um, we'll have that to work with, and then next week will be our third and final iteration of uh, the spooky Yuki guessing game. Um, S O G G Sog, uh, if you'd prefer, and then potentially after that. Uh, the week after that, um, we'll have some uh, different Halloween fun uh, in store. But for now, uh, today's version of Spooky Yuki will have a different sort of umbrella theme to it. Um, so to bring back some nuggets that we, um, I think, faintly alluded to today um, in our conversation, uh, Ganjin Hess, uh, during its its production, it was released and then hacked apart by the studio, um, basically just because they didn't get it and it wasn't what they wanted. It's a, a reasonably well-documented history that you can look up. Um, but that, that fact kind of calls to mind uh, other films that were edited or gutted in some notable fashion after their uh, initial release, uh, right? There, there are uh, far too many. Um, these movies uh, that we're going to be talking about uh, today, for the purposes of this game, may not necessarily be scary themselves, but I think we can all agree that the spooky ookiest thing of all is uh, uh, people in business who do not have faith in artists and therefore feel the need to destroy the things they aren't able to understand. Um, so in that way, these titles will all be cosmically connected, don't you worry. Um, so what I'll do, similar to last week, is have uh, we have a movie for each of our five rounds. It's five rounds. Uh, just so that's up front. Um, I will read off a series of clues for each movie. If any of you three fellows are prepared to issue a guess, raise your hand in our Zencaster call. Uh, and one very important change to note for this game going forward is that when your hand is raised, as soon as I have eyes on that raised hand, I will stop reading the clue I'm on so that you may submit your guess. Uh, so basically, you'll only be getting the information that has been provided at the time of your hand raise. The intent here is uh, hopefully obvious. We don't want contestants abusing the hand raise system to place themselves at the front of the line without some sort of uh, competitive uh, counterbalance in return. Uh, being a game master is a constantly evolving process, but I'm confident this will be uh, more fair for all of us, especially you, the person listening to this podcast right now. Um, everything else is pretty much the same. You'll learn three points for a correct guess using only one clue, two points for a two clue correct guess, one point for a three clue correct guess you get one guess per round so if you submit an incorrect guess you'll be out for the remainder of that movie's round and what i'll do at the end is announce the winner for today's game as well as uh, for funsies give a cumulative total that includes both last week's game and this week's game so with all of that in mind are y'all ready to rumble ready i hope the answer is i'm ready game master (laughs) yeah Perfect. Um, who's got our first movie coming up here? I've got uh, an eye on those hands. Um, perfect. So first clue for our first movie, uh, the salary 
of this movie's dog actor translated to today's dollars was about $2,300 per week, which at the time was more than most working Americans were making. I see uh, Harry's hand is raised. Uh, Harry, would you like to submit a guess? Is that the thing? It is not the thing. Um, a very worthy guess, though. Um, that would have been really uh, thematically awesome to tie back to a previous trial of episode. Um, great guess, uh, but an incorrect one. So Harry's out uh, for this round. We've got Aaron and Jason um, sharing the hot seat now for the, the second clue. Contrary to popular belief, this was not the first movie to be made in color. Contrary to popular belief, and we've got Aaron with his hand up. Aaron, what's your guess? Is this, this the Wizard of Oz? It is the Wizard of Oz. I should have I paid closer attention to the first clue. Now that's, uh, I mean, the first clues are intentionally uh, wide funnels uh, as opposed to smaller ones. Um, but yes, the Wizard of Oz uh, is the, uh, the correct answer there. Aaron gets uh, two points for his uh, correct guess using only two clues. Um, the third clue uh, was um, just a recent study claimed that this was the most watched movie in film history due to television screenings and numerous home video releases, uh, enabling children of all generations uh, to see it. Um, I've got a few tidbits about this movie's background. Um, it's ultimately very common, I think, for a movie to have test screenings and undergo revisions. That sort of thing is you know, especially more widely reported on now, just with the level of uh, transparency and visibility we have uh, in today's world. Um, but what elevates certain movies, um, when I say certain, I guess I mean older movies, uh, to an almost mythical status is that once uh, sequences were cut, there's a reasonable chance that those sequences, uh, sequences rather, will never be kept and preserved. Uh, instead of you know, instead they're being discarded and they're lost forever. In the case of The Wizard of Oz, the original cut was about two hours, um, which is a bigger deal back in the 30s than it is now. Maybe except within our immediate circle because um, we're uh, we're old people with short attention spans. Um, speaking mainly for myself, the studio gradually scaled it down to a 101 minute runtime, um, including the cuts for some reprises of existing musical numbers like Over the Rainbow and uh, Ding Dong The Witch Is Dead. I don't know if that's the name of the song, but that's you know everybody knows what that song is. Um, over the rainbow was actually almost, uh, uh, entirely cut out, uh, as you know, the, it itself was almost entirely removed, not just like reprises, but that song was almost cut period, which is wild to think about now because it, it did win the Academy Award for best song that year. And it essentially became Judy Garland's signature song. Um, but the director and producers fought to keep it in. Um, and that's uh, super cool. Uh, the other stuff that was cut is mostly available in restored special editions, uh, but not all of it is available. And that's just the way it goes. Um, sorry for that. But uh, getting back to, to the game here, we've got uh, the second movie coming up. Aaron has a commanding lead with two points for today's game. We can't let that's... him win again, Jason. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. God damn it. Yep. Uh, common enemy as, um, as the gamers say, maybe, um, first that's right. Clue. <laughs> first clue, uh, for the second movie, uh, among the many influential components of this movie is the fact that rain was used to set the tone of the film's climactic sequence. The rain in the climactic sequence was a very influential component of this movie. Um, uh, I, I so I saw Aaron, yeah, I saw Aaron. Yep, I, yep. Thank you. I was going to say, I think it was Aaron. Feel free to correct me. So I got Aaron with, uh, with the guest here. Uh, was a Blade Runner. It was not Blade Runner. Um, again, very, very good, valid guess. Uh, Jason's hand was up. Are you pulling it back down? Now uh, that- do I have to guess? Is that one of the rules? If I put my um, hand I'll, up, I'll say no. 
Okay, okay, because my that guess seems is going generous. to be I think I disagree with these rules. I think you put your fucking thing up, you got to answer. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's your look, it's your game. It's I think I think it's pretty well competitively balanced at this point. You know, you stop with the the information mm. you get. Listen, uh, Cody has yeah. fine-tuned the meta on this. He, to he a signified that he was ready to answer based on the information he had got. All right, I'm and then, unless Aaron's going to argue with me, I'm, I'm good. It's interesting that the the I'm, I'm on Aaron's side here. The the, yeah, the two people that the the two people that that held lead held leads the game proletariat, as it were, are the ones that have uh, the severe issues with this. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, working class yeah. Jason. It would, uh, the, it would be the game bourgeois, yeah, it'd be uh, the game bourgeois. Yeah, the game bourgeoisie. Yes. Uh, which Harry, by the way? Yeah. Harry Look, you two, don't make me give you negative Harry's points for right correcting now. the yeah. game master. You pieces of shit. Oh, second like clue on the record. I disagree. Second, uh, second clue for the, our second movie. Um, and this game <laughs> at this rate will take forty-five minutes, uh, which is my own fault. A recent remake of this movie co-starred Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio. Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio. If there are no hands, I will move forth to the the third and final clue for this movie. Uh, not only is this movie a previous trial of episode, but it also won a Golden Berry. Man, I feel like a fucking fool. A Golden Berry. Uh, Think about the clues. At this point, okay, it, Harry, let's team up. We've got Ring. Honestly, you should just both raise your hand and submit a guess uh, because you lose nothing. I can't Jason, remember anything. Jason had his hand up first, so Jason gets uh, the first crack at uh, what is now a one point guess. Jason, what's your guess? <laughs> a lot on the line here. Ay, <laughs> Carrie. Carrie. Um, it fits some Carrie of the criteria. Didn't berries. Golden carries. Uh, incorrect guess from Jason. Um, but all things considered, I it was submi- a good guess. at least I submitted one. Yeah, uh, uh, man, I don't know. I three it's seconds. Completely, uh, seven samurai. <laughs> With ding ding ding! ding. Seven <laughs> samurai is correct. What? What? I hate everything. They didn't what? do that. With Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio? Wait a minute, yeah, the they, Magni- remade, the Magnificent they remade Seven. the Magnificent Seven. That's not a remake. That that counts. I, that doesn't, I that honestly, absolutely that doesn't count. Harry and I are the only people with any brain. <laughs> uh, so I will take this point away from Harry. He doesn't want it. Do what? I correct? Well, you, I just said I, a, you just said the second clue was invalid, right? Yeah, so I should get two points. No, absolutely not. It's it's like he only had two good clues. So <laughs> That's yeah. all right, exactly all right, right. Wait, all right. No, because I'm winning. We're, we're going to have to ring this in or pinch it off here. All right. Uh, so one point for Harry, even though everybody is being a shyster. We'll move into our third <laughs> movie. Uh, first clue. Um, Max von Sydow was in, the re- uh, was in the recent trial of episode The Seventh Seal, and he is also one of the main actors in this uh, fairly well-known movie. I added fairly well-known just to really rub it in. If uh, you guys don't get this, uh, Jason, uh, I see his hand raised. Jason, what is your guess for movie Star number Wars three? Episode Seven: The Force Awakens? Uh, that yeah, is... one of the main actors. He's in like five <laughs> seconds of that movie. Jason, listen, you know I'm shooting my shot because I can only lose from here. I I love that Jason shot a shot. I would give him 500 points if I could, but uh, I, I will not. But unfortunately, um... <laughs> I do make the rules. <laughs> 
Um, I will move on to the second clue here. Uh, the movie in question here is generally regarded as one of the best and most influential horror films ever made. I see Aaron with his hand up. Aaron, what is your oh, guess? Uh, the Exorcist? Ding, ding, ding. The Exorcist. Oh, nice. Yeah, I should have got that. Woo! Uh, third clue, I was just going to give the quote, what an excellent day for an exorcism. And if nobody got it from there, I would have been very sad. Um, but uh, yeah, there uh, uh, admittedly isn't anything too noteworthy here as far as the release versions go. There was a director's cut, um, or a few director's cuts once like DVD and Blu-ray became prevalent and that kind of became the norm. Um, they go back to, you know, oh, these are some scenes. Let's throw them out there. Uh, but a fascinating theme with this movie's release was just uh, their, their fights with the MPAA ratings board because of what this movie was trying to do and the wide audience it wanted to get, um, it would have been doomed, uh, to get an X rating, which, uh, I guess modern day is kind of like NC 17 that more or less replaced it. Um, but director William Friedkin, uh, fought that and got the MPAA, uh, director at the time to watch the movie. And <laughs> due to the exorcist being cited as quote unquote, an important film, they were able to leave it, uh, as a rated R movie without having any cuts. Um, I also wanted to shoehorn in the exorcist because, uh, I could then note that a William Friedkin theme uh, would be uh, will be taking place at the trial immediately following Halloween. Let's the fucking go. The Exorcist will not be among those shown, um, but there are a oh. few uh, in the mix that I'm personally pretty excited to They're see. They're going to show fucking Sorcerer, dude. Sorcerer, Cruising, uh, French Connection, and uh, To Live and Die in L.A., I believe, is is the slate we have to look forward to, which is really cool. Um so to, to summarize where we're at right now, we are three movies in. Uh, Aaron has a whopping four points on the day. Harry uh, is at one. Jason uh, is at zero. He's kind of the, I'm at um, one with an asterisk. Excuse me. Uh, I'm the Jason, dark horse over here. Jason's uh, kind of the people's hero, uh, I think, at, at this point. Um, the people's hero. The, the people's hero. The, the pee-pee's hero would have been way better. Movie number four. Oh, I hate yeah. everything. Uh, clue number one. Um, so I wanted to try approaching, uh, one of these movies a little bit differently clue wise. Uh, so for this one, um, the clues are going with, I'm going to give three different taglines, uh, that this movie had at various points, uh, for the first tagline we have <clears throat> man has made his match. Now it's his problem. Man has made his match. Now it's his problem. If there are no hands, uh, going up, which it doesn't look like there are, I will move on to I have tagline. Heard that, very upsetting that I do not remember what this is. Pretty fucked up. Pretty fucked up, uh, in my in my opinion. Uh, number two, tagline number two. A chilling, bold, mesmerizing, futuristic detective thriller. What in the fuck? Aaron Grossman with his hand raised for a two-point guess. Uh, Aaron, what is your guess? Is this Blade Runner? It is Blade Runner. God damn it! <laughs> Holy shit. Um... Yeah, the uh, I'm not going to get into the release history and the tracking of Blade Runner's different versions uh, and director's cuts. It's super duper convoluted and very messy. That's a lot to get into. And there are Wikipedia articles that will be a much better assistance um, than we will be. Uh, but it is certainly one of the most, if not the most infamous case of a movie getting re-edited after hey, its uh, initial release. What? Cody. Sorry, I uh, I wasn't taking notes. What's uh, what's the point totals for this game so far? So, that's a, a fair question here. Um, I hate that you asked it. Um, so today's game, uh, Aaron Grossman uh, has um, he has six points. Uh, Harry Mackin one oh. point, and Jason, the people's hero, Daphnis uh, at uh, at a donut right now. We are going into our our last our last movie here. 
Um, and for this, <laughs> for this one, I felt like doing th- continuing to do uh, things a little differently. That was a sentence. Um, but also, I just started running out of gas. So we're just going to go with quotes uh, for this final movie uh, in the Spooky Yuki guessing game, which has been Spooky Yuki for a lot of reasons. Um, dear listener, uh, the first one, his coin. It's his Achilles heel. It can be exploited. <laughs> his coin? His coin. It's his Achilles heel. It can be exploited. The three-point guesses are not meant to be easy, um, but they will get slightly easier. Uh, Did I this, hear this, this recently? Uh... Ganjan Hess is the correct... No. Um, second quote here. Uh Ooh, nice form, but a little rough on the landing. He may have to settle for the bronze. Aaron Grossman, yet again, with his hand up for a two-point guess. Aaron Grossman, what is your movie? Uh, Blades of Glory. <clears throat> Blades of Glory is Aaron's guess. It's a wrong one. Um, so no no points this round for Aaron. Blades of Glory, incorrect guess here. Um, we've got one more quote here. Um Godspeed, riddle me this. What sort of a man has bats on the brain? Go ahead, you can say it. Harry Mackin. Is it Batman Forever? It is indeed Batman Forever. Um, This movie was more of a mess prior to its release than I had ever realized. Um, Check the Wikipedia page for Batman Forever uh, and you will see a dense, and I mean dense, bulleted list of deleted or rearranged scenes um, and Following director Joel Schumacher's death uh, this past June, RIP, murmurings of a potential Schumacher cut surfaced online. Um, and some of the reported differences involve a much darker tone than the final version, uh, the original cut displayed, and theoretical additions being a uh, you know, less Dick Grayson, more psych evaluations with Chase Meridian, and Bruce Wayne fighting off against a human-sized bat. Um, so needless to say- Man bat. That, uh, exactly. Um, we need this cut. Um we need this cut, especially after the results of today's game, which left us uh, with Aaron at six points for today, Harry with two, Jason with zero, uh, and then kind of the past, uh, or rather the combined five. Combined score uh, for the, the past two games, um, Aaron Grossman has a commanding lead with nine. Harry uh, comes in with Oh, four. I don't think we need to do this. I, that doesn't seem Jason like something information of viewers. This is made. funny because I, uh, I legitimately, I think among every single person that I record this podcast with, know the least about movies. I, I think that is like undeniable. Yeah, I it's mean, hilarious. It's, 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 clearly, it's clearly deniable now. I mean, just going by the numbers, you know the most about movies. <laughs> well, I, or I'm very good at the art of trivia. The, yep, the uh, art of trivia. As stated at the beginning, um, you know, I did mention that I would be combining scores at the end. Uh, you know, enhanced l- listening comprehension might lead to to better scores. Uh, you know, we can read into that uh, however we need to. But with that, uh, we have now the game masters getting my ass. Uh, we have concluded today's game. A big thanks uh, to you, fine gentlemen, for getting spooky ooky uh, for a second time. Thank you yeah, for indulging that, uh, dear listener. Thanks, Cody. It's uh, it's great. Congratulations, Aaron. It's Cody's noties. Uh, this has been a podcast. <laughs> uh, we talked about a movie. 
Uh, thank you very much for listening to Try Love. Um, you can see Ganja and Hess and Night of the Living Dead this coming weekend at the Trilon by going to Trilon.org and purchasing your tickets there. Or you can purchase a ticket and not go just as an idea uh, because COVID-19 still ravages across the planet and is um, very dangerous to, to be in public with other people, especially in a small space. Understand if you're not comfortable with that, you can still support the Trilon in a number of ways at their website trilon.org if you do go wear a mask and don't do anything that's going to force yourself to remove that mask like bring snacks drinks etc uh my name is jason daphnis and you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus i've been cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh i'm harry i apologize for letting aaron once again get one over on me i know my fans must be very disappointed uh rest assured I will not be letting this happen again, either in the main episode or in Cody's notice. I will be working very hard to see that Aaron receives his just comeuppance. You can follow me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. You know, you know what it fucking is, baby. It's your reigning Cody's notice quiz show champion. Two weeks running. It's Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at Arby, please. Oh boy! Thank God our horrors outweigh our manners.